welcome to Shaken or Stirred. Thank you for being here this week. I hope you are doing well. I want to remind you to um, follow us on Instagram at Shaken or Stirred Podcast and um, subscribe to the podcast um, wherever you listen. And um, if you feel like it, leave a review for us. So this week, um, you're going to be hearing from me, myself and I. Um, I'm going to be talking a bit about um, just the idea of a biracial person and what that experience kind of is. Um, And I'm going to be reading from a book called Black, White, Other. So go ahead, sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, guys. So like I said, I'm going to be reading from this book. It's called Black, White, and Other. And it's by Lise Funderburg. Um, She is um, obviously black and white. She's a biracial author. And the book is a little bit old. It was published in 1994, so about 25 years. Um, But what the book is, is um, a compilation of interviews and experiences of people who are black and white. So um, this is specifically people who are biracial in black and whiteness um, and not um, other um, mixes, but um, I still think it's relevant for sure, just in general to people who are biracial. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to read from this. I'm on page 25. Not that you have this book, but um, if you look it up, I'm sure you can find it. Um, so here we go. It says, it takes two people to create a biracial child, a mother and a father. Like all parents, they may be largely responsible for shaping how their children see themselves in the world. What parents teach about race, in part from their own experience of race. Few interracial couples escaped all the landmines that are historically placed in their paths. From being disowned by both sides of the family to the occasional stare or muttered comment on the street. While some couples would respond to such treatment with bitterness, or might even retreat from each other, others remain steadfast in their commitment to one another and to the family they have created together. So now it's going to go into a little bit of history about interracial marriage in the United States. Uh, It wasn't until 1967 in the U.S. Supreme Court's Loving versus Virginia decision that remaining anti-miscegenate nation laws, still in the books in 16 states at the time, were overruled. Richard and Mildred Loving were the appealants in the case. In 1958, the newlywed Lovings were arrested in their Virginia hometown for being married to each other. She was black and he was white. Rather than face incarceration, they moved back to their respective parents, then moved together to Washington, D.C., where they lived for several years. The Virginia judge's ruling also ordered that they never visit Virginia together. Miserable in their exile, they asked for help from Robert Kennedy, then Attorney General of the United States. Kennedy directed them to the American Civil Liberties Union, where two lawyers took on their case. Nine years later, nine years, the Levings and their lawyers changed the law of the land. Laws against miscegenation existed in America as early as 1661. By and large, they targeted only groups that were not allowed to marry whites, sometimes reflecting regional concerns. Laws in Arizona prohibited whites from marriages with Negroes, um, Mongolians, Indians, Malay, or Hindu people. Oregon prohibited whites from marrying anyone more than one half Indian or one quarter Negro, one quarter Chinese, or one quarter Kanaka. 
or Hawaiian. In some states, including Maryland and Louisiana, legislators also wrote in provisions against Indians and blacks marrying, probably to prevent the formation of a coalition between the two oppressed groups. Lawyers and the threat of social censor never successfully precluded interracial relationships and the conception of biracial children. Still, since the loving decision, black and white marriages have increased dramatically. According to the census, they jumped 370 8% from 1970 to 1992. Like I said, this is old, so that data is definitely out of date. Um, but if such families almost certainly invite some level of criticism and rejection, why have people continued to cross racial lines? Are interracial couples visionaries living out a utopian ideal? Are they retaliating against or perpetuating an earlier American miscegenation, the slave master's rape of the slave? While the preponderance of racial mixing in early US history was between white men and black women, today, according to the census, 85% of black, white, interracial marriages reverse that configuration. Does this gender shift speak to alliances of power and powerlessness or something else altogether? Somewhere in the answers to why these couples come together lie clues to what information they will give their children about race. For many people, their first and last, longest lasting impressions of race come from the parents and family. For biracial children, the very existence and nature of their parents' relationship often provides a paradigm for understanding or valuing race. The parents' relationship might communicate that love transcends racial barriers and serve as evidence that people can bridge what have been considered immutable gaps in color, culture, and experience. On the other hand, parents may behave in ways that cement divisions and distinctions, and not always intentionally. I used to wonder if my mother really liked black people that much, one woman said about her white parent. Many black-white couples think, and think they and their children are all part of the same experience, that they are equal participants in their multiracial family. They expect that their children will experience the world as they do, and that the views they hold their children can hold too. Mindy Thompson Fully Love is a psychiatrist who has studied racial identity formation in biracial people and is herself biracial. She explains what she found to be the more accurate dynamic between parents and children. The parents' perspective on this problem is really different from the kids' perspective. That's what's most striking. The parents, at best, think they've done something wonderful in putting together a family that defies racial convention. For them, it's an issue of love conquering all or an affirmation of what they wish for themselves over and above the conventions of society. For the parents, it's this this consciously chosen thing to live in this way. But the kids didn't choose. They just have to grow up in the midst of it. That's a really important distinction because the parents tend to think it's the same for the kids as it is for them. And it's truly not. Now that doesn't mean the kids and parents don't agree about what it is but the perspective is profoundly different. A white person and a black person come together to create a family. But the family, the kids, are biracial, and they've got to make some sense out of this. Those are completely different tasks, and to the, the extent that most parents never get that, they just think of this wonderful thing they've done for their kids, and it's all multiracial and wonderful, and a wave of the future. They really don't get that it's different things for the kids, whatever it is. And that it, what the kids are doing, is changing over time. So it's different for the people who are gen a generation ahead of me than it is for my kids. It's not the same set of tasks. So that was the reading from the book.
And I kind of just um, want to reflect on it, um, I guess just from personal experience. Um, and my experience is different because my, um, I was not intentionally created, um, so to speak. And so I don't think there was necessarily a thought behind the idea that I was being created as a biracial child um, and that I was going to live in this world in that space. And so I think for me, growing up in the white space with white parents really created this dynamic of having to ignore a part of myself. Um, you know, I grew up in Southern Illinois in a pretty conservative area and there weren't people of color in my area and not saying that I really experienced discrimination um, from my peers or um, my parents' peers, but I, I do remember feeling this sense of otherness. Um, regardless if someone pointed it out or not, it was always just this elephant in the room of differentness. And like I said, I don't think, well, I know my creation wasn't intentional. And so um, I don't think there was necessarily any thought put into, oh, how are we going to raise this child, this black and white child um, who is a little more brown um, than white. <clears throat> and I think it put me in a weird position to want to deny my brownness, ignore my brownness, ignore the fact that I was different in an attempt to fit in and in an attempt to, you know, get by every day and not have to answer questions about why I look different. Um, and, you know, I think that if there were more conversations um, about race, about identity, um, and if there was a bit more honesty, I would have, I would have not struggled as much with identity um, and with not liking myself. And I, from my interviews that I've done with, um, I think for the four people that I've interviewed so far, this seems like a common thread. Um, it seems like communication in terms of identity, race, a place in the world, isn't something that occurs between parents and children, um, especially biracial children. And um, like the book said, I don't know if it's because the parents think their children are having the same experiences as they are in the world or what the thought process is behind that lack of communication. But um, I think it's definitely something that needs to change. And it, with my generation, things are changing. We are realizing that communication is important. Addressing issues and difficulties and emotions are important. Um, but with the my parents' generation, you know, it's kind of more of a don't ask, don't tell mentality. And... 
So I definitely think that aspect of life and identity um, exploration has to change in order for us to, and when I say us, for just people in general, um, but also biracial people, to be able to have a space and and understand that we don't have to live in the in-between. Um, the in-between, living in the in-between is something I spoke about on my last podcast um, episode with Lizzie. And I think for the most part, if you ask any biracial person or multiracial person, you know, that is one hard thing is having to live in between two cultures, in between two identities, um, and not necessarily fitting fully in either of them. So while growing up, um, you know, from grade school up until high school, um, I fit in because everyone knew my parents were white. Um, No one necessarily asked me questions, even if they thought them. And so I felt like I was hiding in the open, you know, I was, I was existing as white, you know, I identified as white. I thought I was white and no one necessarily questioned it or pressed it. And so I was, I was safe in that. Um, And then when I got to high school, is when questions started flooding and started coming at me and I had no answers for those questions. I had no answers for myself and the questions that I had about myself. And, um, you know, I, I attempted to ask questions and they were pretty much side skirted and, you know, kind of just pushed under the rug a bit. And, And I think that's when I started living in the in-between, you know, living in this white space that I have felt safe in for so long, but also knowing that it wasn't where I belonged and it, and I wasn't fully accepted there. Um, You know, I went through periods in high school, especially my freshman year, sophomore year, where I would skip school. I would, um, I would call my mom and they would have been left for work already because they left early. And I'll call my mom and I would say, mom, I'm sick. I don't want to go to school. And I would stay home. And the reason I was staying home is because I didn't want to face the kids at school asking me questions, asking me if I was black, asking me, you know, why I look different, like questioning, oh, I thought your parents were white, but you don't look like that. Um, because I had no answers. The answers that I gave were, oh, well, my mom's white, my dad's German, because my father's from Germany. And, um, you know, that, <laughs> that answer didn't align with what they were seeing, how, how they were looking at me and my physical features. And, you know, it became overwhelming and it became very isolating. And that's definitely when that in-between space came into my life. And I think ever since then, I have been in and out of the in-between. When I got to college is when I finally learned about my biological father, who's black. And um, when that happened, 
I felt even more in the in-between because I didn't know anything about being black. I didn't know the cultures, the playing, the music, the anything, you know, I didn't know anything outside of the stereotypical information in the media or from TV about black culture. And so, you know, I would go to BSA, the Black Student Association, and um, I would look the part, right? I looked brown, I looked black, um, but I felt like I was an imposter. And I can remember sitting in those meetings or just hanging out with my peers and thinking, uh, someone's gonna find out. You know, someone's gonna find out that I don't, I don't know what it means to be black. I've, I don't have the specific experience that in my head um, most black people did. And obviously now I'm aware that, well, just in general, everyone has a different type of experience, no matter your color. But then I had this idea that there were specific things, specific um, knowledge that I had to have in order to be accepted. And so even then in that space, I felt like I was in the in-between. And, um, you know, I, I tried my best to, to balance and try to find my way in between my white world and my black world. Um, but there was never much, never a time where I felt that I could hold both of them at the same time. And so I think that's the general struggle for people who are biracial. I guess specifically people who do come from backgrounds where both of their parents are different ethnicities or races or cultures. Um, because trying to hold both and is a very difficult thing. I mean, not knowing which way to go or who can accept you or who will accept you specifically in America. Um, America was built on division. America was built on black versus white, uh, Native American versus European. Um, you know, America doesn't do well holding contradicting things. And I am that thing. And so seeing black and white come together is not something that America praises, historically speaking. I'm not saying it's not possible and I'm not saying there aren't instances of, the, of it, but historically it's not, not the norm. And so being that that's what I am, um, it's really hard sometimes. And, you know, so I think all this is to say <clears throat> that if we as people and we as Americans, whatever race, color, creed you are, if we want to move forward as a society and as a people, I think something we really need to work on is our communication, our acceptance of others and their experiences. Something that's also really hard for 
I think people in general, but specifically Americans is, is hearing two contradicting stories or hearing a story that contradicts your experience. Once again, we aren't good at holding both and. And I think as a people, we have to become better at that. We have to become better at using active listening and compassion and critically thinking and sitting in the uncomfortableness that is life and that is America and realizing that multiple experiences can exist and that not everyone is living this so-called American dream or able to achieve the so-called American dream. So overall, if you're listening to this, if you made it this far, I just hope that um, you would challenge yourself and challenge the people around you to think about others, to put themselves in the shoes of others, um, and to open their minds. I think it's very dangerous to be so closed-minded that you can only see yourself and you can only see the way life is for you. Um, and really just being able to communicate and to actively listen without questioning or contradicting or invalidating someone else's experience is a skill. It really is a skill. It's something that has to be practiced, but it's a skill that will make you such a, such a more understanding, compassionate individual. And I think we can definitely use more of that in our world. And so I hope you, I hope you're uncomfortable. I hope you feel challenged. I hope um, maybe you have a conversation with someone or you listen to someone or you stop arguing with the people on your Facebook page that aren't posting things that align with your political views or cultural views or religious views. And I hope that you can practice holding both and, and that your worldview and your mind will open to all of the possibilities and all of the things that our world has to offer. So once again, I want to thank you for listening and being here with me. I hope you are well and safe and keeping sane during this time. And I will talk to you next week. Have a good day.